When we have an emergency or a crisis, we can see where the gaps are in our systems and mm-hmm. it and we're seeing it in 3D going on right now. Hello everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Di Donato and I'm Marion Leary and you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a pen nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today, on this second special episode of the Amplify Nursing podcast, we speak with public health nurse Dr. Lisa Campbell. Dr. Campbell is a professor at Texas Tech University Health Science Center's School of Nursing and the immediate past chair of the American Public Health Association's Public Health Nursing Section. Dr. Campbell is also the chairperson of the Council of Public Health Nursing Organizations and leads initiatives to advance public health in urban and rural communities. We talk with Dr. Campbell about the current state of our public health system in the U.S., the effect this rapidly changing coronavirus pandemic is having on that system, and what we could be doing differently to flatten the curve. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today about everything that's going on with the spread of the coronavirus from a public health perspective. Oh, you're welcome, Angela. It's such a pleasure being with you here this morning from my kitchen in San Antonio, Texas. (laughs) So... (laughs) How do you think things are going on the front line? What is the public health perspective right now? I don't think it's going uh, as well as we'd like it to. Um, The public health professionals on the front line, I know the public health nurses on the front line are exhausted. Um, I'm I'm afraid they're going to be burned out. They don't have enough staff. Um, We're hearing that they're working 12-hour shifts, seven days a week, um, and a lot of a lot of the, I mean, we're hearing this across the country, um, which is which is highly problematic. And um, it, it really, the root cause of a lot of, in terms of our public health response, has to do with um, the decrease in public health funding that we've experienced over the decade, you know, at least two decades. How do you feel? I was reading an article that you and I were talking about earlier about the gap that we have in our the public health spending in our country. Can you talk a little bit about how that money is allocated and how the whole public health system works in the U.S.? Sure. Um, so I'm just going to give a really high-level systems uh, perspective. So there's federal funding that's allocated for public health uh, in the budget. And that funding typically goes to some of the federal agencies. As an example, we'll take Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. And CDC then uh, pushes that money down to the state, if you will. So there's certain certain lines that go under CDC funding. So one of the lines is Public Health Emergency Preparedness, or PHEP. And in that is also hospital preparedness. So that funding then goes down to the state. The state doesn't necessarily have to submit a grant for that funding, but the, it's 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 um, it's a pass through funding from the from the uh, federal government to a federal agency, then down to the states. 
And let me just walk you through then what that looks like in a particular state. So I live in Texas and Angela, I was a former public health department director. I had three counties in South Texas, um, rural counties in South Texas. And so with the public health emergency preparedness funding from our state or PHEP, we were able to hire um, uh, a PHEP coordinator who who worked with our local city and county jurisdictions to develop preparedness plans. So mm -hmm. there's federal there's federal preparedness plans and then there's state preparedness plans. And so we had state preparedness plans that looked at um, a range of issues, whether it was a natural disaster, man-made disaster, or in this case, a pandemic and how we were preparing for that in terms of surge capacity. So then at our county level, we are connected to our regional state division. And that regional state division uh, had received fundings after 9-11 to do um, emergency preparedness or public health emergency preparedness and wisely, our region uh, actually has one of them, a very coordinated effort, I would say, in terms of the cash or availability of ventilators, um, access to a mobile morgue, access to be able to stand up um, hospitals, uh, those kinds of things. And so that all, that was all, that's what your federal pass through dollars do. Now, the, the problem is uh, we don't have enough cash or reserve of ventilators for what they're anticipating to be the numbers of individuals that would be hospitalized with, you know, with the diagnosis of positive COVID-19. Um, uh, we, we just don't have the capacity of ventilators. Um, Mm -hmm. So and and also there's countermeasures in there. So for example, uh, the the when the pods are dispersed when we have an emergency, some of the countermeasures have to do with vaccines, uh, medications, antibiotics, antiretrovirals, those kinds of things. Uh, and and we, as you know, Angela, we don't have a vaccine or antiretrovirals available uh, to combat. Uh, COVID-19. I was looking at some of the comparisons to the H1N1 pandemic that happened as well. And it seemed as though we ended up with a vaccine fairly early. I came across a couple of things that, and I don't know how accurate they are, saying that for this particular pandemic, we are not going to see a vaccine for at least a year, possibly 18 months. So right. Right. Why, yeah. So how, why, why the discrepancy in the time, do you think? Well, well, that's a good question and uh, maybe over my pay grade to even respond. <laughs> but what I think, it, Angela, you brought up a really good point in terms of that would fall under medical countermeasures with the um, Health and Human Service pandemic plan that was updated. It was actually put into place in 2005 after the World Health Organization recommended that all nations developed 
uh, plans to address pandemics. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so then it was updated in 2017, the, the health and human services pandemic plan. Well, under that, as I mentioned, I think that there's seven domains and one of them's medical countermeasures. So under mm -hmm. medical countermeasures would be vaccines and uh, any antiretrovirals to um, administer to patients who were had the disease. Okay, so mm -hmm. what we saw in the H1N1 pandemic is that um, there was a candidate uh, virus that was isolated by CDC pretty early on, and they were able then to develop a vaccine uh, and that was rolled out between October and November. So we saw our first case of H1N1 in the United States uh, in April, uh, actually April 15th of 2009. So about mm -hmm. six, six to seven months later, we had a vaccine that was rolled out uh, because uh, you know, we we had had other flu vaccines, and you know, every year they track what strain of, of flu we have, and then they update the vaccine for the next year. So mm -hmm. what we're seeing this year, this time around, is they have isolated a candidate uh, vac uh, virus to start testing a vaccine, and actually the. Um, Phase one trials were reported. They're doing them in Seattle, Washington through NIH. And the phase one testing for the vaccine began uh, actually uh, around the 16th, which was this week. And okay. But we're not going to have a vaccine available for a year. Now, honestly, Angela, I, I can't tell you because that's, again, not in my my specialty area why mm -hmm. it's going to take so long without further investigation. But that's what we know so far. Well, the other thing, so if if I might talk just a little yeah. bit and kind of about the whole thing of testing at, under the uh, umbrella of medical countermeasures. So part of the issue now is that we don't have a true number of cases or the denominators because, denominator because we didn't have testing kits that were rolled out quickly, okay? So mm -hmm. we... We, what happened, well, let me just compare and contrast. So in H1N1 or the swine flu, some people know it as that because uh, pigs have it. And mm -hmm. um, anyway, so we, the FDA in April of 2018, now keep in mind that about um, two weeks earlier, that was the, the first uh, documented, documented case of H1N1 in California in a child. So FDA uh, released under the emergency use agreement, they cleared the CDC to use a real-time PCR test that they had actually been developing. And mm -hmm. the tests, okay, so that was April 28th. So a few days later on May 1st, and this information actually is from a CDC historical document that is available online, but the test kits were shipped uh, on May 1st to labs across the United States. So, okay, in, okay so now let's look at COVID. Uh, Testing began in February of 2020, um, but, but the CDC did find that those kits uh, had some issues, okay? So then mm -hmm. on March 
14th, so our first reported case in the United States was February 20th. It was a 35-year-old gentleman who had returned from Wuhan, China on January the 15th. The, the test kits, though, did not roll out to all 50 states until about March 14th. So there's mm -hmm. a big lag in testing. Correct. There so is. We're, we're, the numbers are fairly inaccurate at this point. Yes, when you look at surveillance, we need to have a true denominator of the number of cases to really understand the mortality and the morbidity. Uh, I was mm -hmm. just playing with the numbers this morning. Of the I looked at the John Hopkins tracker, and they have us at 9,415 cases. That was this morning, about an hour ago. And if you look at the number of deaths that they've reported, which is 150, that puts us at, it, just doing a simple calculation, it puts us at a mortality rate of 1.59% as compared to um, H1N1. We had 60, mm -hmm. we had 60.8 million cases, Angela, documented, and we had 12,469 deaths or a mortality rate of 0.02. Now, again, that's a crude calculation just on my calculator, but that's pretty much accurately reported in the literature, like 0.01 to 0.02. So even right. with conservative estimates, we're looking at something that's much more, has much more, much higher mortality than right. H1N1. That's, that's correct. Based on the cases we know of now, right? Right. Based on, mm -hmm. based on the documented cases, and that's all we can go by. Right. Well, and the other thing, too, that's interesting about the comparison is that we're looking at H1N1 with all of the information. So we, we have yes. all of the totals. We know what, yes. and we know what transpired, and it, and it ended. And right now we're in the thick of it. We don't have any of the numbers. We won't for a long time. So we really won't be able to compare these two public health issues until this is all over with anyway. Yeah, and Angela, I'm really glad that you said that, but I think it's also really important as we move through this time period to, to track these things to help think about what plans were in place and like almost in real time, think about what are the lessons learned, what are the, the gaps, maybe unintended consequences that we are hearing about across the nation from our colleagues, like not having enough PPE or not having enough testing kits or funding issues, or for example, hospitals may have not tested their full surge capability if something like this happens. So they may not be at an adequate staffing level anyway for a mm -hmm. surge, and they may not have plans in place. You know, there is hospital preparedness, but we don't know what those plans are in terms of how, how are they kind of call up their own reserves when the majority of the nurses, let's say, or even the other healthcare providers, uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, become ill or have to self-quarantine for two weeks. How are they going to handle that? That's what we're facing right. right now. That's what we're facing. Although there, you know, the the Surgeon General has called to cancel, you know, all elective cases. Not everybody's doing that either. 
we, you know, we don't know where the surge is going to be. And on top of it, we're populating ICU beds with elective cases. Right. And so that gets back to early on when when Surgeon General Adams was telling people on social media and in press releases, please, please, that your flu vaccine. No, the mm-hmm. flu vaccine is not going to prevent the coronavirus. But what it does is it keeps it it reduces the number of individuals who might get the flu who might then have complications that need to be hospitalized out Mm -hmm. of the hospitals for this very reason. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're mitigating as many other things as we can along the way by getting the flu vaccine. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right, Angela. What do you think that we could be doing differently from a public health perspective? Like, you know, genie in a bottle kind of a question. What would you think that we could do differently? Okay, so if you had asked me that question yesterday, I would have answered it differently. But knowing what I know between <laughs> last night and early this morning, I'm going to give you uh-huh. a, a, an answer or or my uh, what I believe. So there's a couple things. As I mentioned, one of the things that we've had problems with for the last couple of decades is public health funding. So we Mm -hmm. need an adequately funded public health system, and we also need a coordinated, a a more coordinated national response. So we know there's issues with states' rights and so forth, but when you call a national emergency, in my opinion, there should be certain coordinated strategies that all states, all jurisdictions implement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they're more standardized and uniform and realizing that they may have to be adjusted based on the burden to, of disease, number of cases, concentration in particular areas. The other thing that we have a real problem with in the United States is our uh, infrastructure in uh, within governmental agencies like public health when it comes to Uh, interoperability of networks. So let me give you an example. So um, we have a lot of people who want to help our public health departments at the state and local level. And many of us can't do that because the the limitations within those systems. So as an example, in order for, for, let's say, nurses to volunteer, and even, let's say, licensed nurses, maybe in APRM programs, mm-hmm. to answer call lines, they, most health departments don't have a cloud-based system or system where you could access a template to fill in information, like if you were following up on a patient who may be uh, in quarantine, that you're monitoring or giving advice, because they have to track that. So there's not a way to access that system remotely to be able to um, relieve other personnel to do other types of activities and actually reduce their overall staff. So uh, we need to be able to have systems in place where uh, when an emergency like this is declared or whether it's a natural disaster 
Angela. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, we deal with hurricanes all the time in Texas. There's other parts of the U.S. that deal with tornadoes and floods and so forth. But in times mm -hmm. of natural disasters, we need to be able to call up people that are ready and available and be able to tap into remotely systems to be able to enter information. And what better um, profession to tap into than nurses? We have nursing schools across the United States with highly trained and educated faculty and highly um, educated and capable licensed students that could step in and do those type of uh, types of activities. Yeah, like so an emergency it, nurse corps. Yes, because what, yeah. what, I, what I'm seeing is sometimes and well, let me see, sometimes the some of the volunteer services like medical corps, some of them are more organized than others. But I believe mm -hmm. we can have a truly organized, well put together, well designed emergency nurse corps to mobilize to do just this. But it's going to take uh, technology and some infrastructure to be able to access these systems to be able to handle and reduce the burden of the calls and obtain information that's needed. That it would be put in your queue that you check on these patients or these individuals in quarantine. So I know that um, some municipalities have like a, a medical reserve core. So what's the difference between that and what, what it is that we're talking about now? Um, well, this would be this would be actually specifically focused to handle the surge of calls directly mm -hmm. that a state or local health department would receive, and it would okay. not necessarily be directly going to a um, shelter or making or maybe going to somebody's home. It would be actually un you know take relieving the burden of public health professionals by taking by doing these calls in this triage if you will it okay. would be totally different it would be very focused yeah it sounds like it would be something and much more efficient i think yes yes getting getting to that point you talked about how we don't really have a broad overall coordinated response and that everything seems to be at a very local level. Do you see, are there any examples that popping up anywhere of um, places that are doing things really well and or places that are doing things very poorly that we could either emulate or change? So uh, what I've noticed is uh, in Seattle, they're doing things really well by standing up uh, drive-through testing for individuals mm -hmm. where you'll, I know you've probably seen them in the media, Angela, but you know, we're hearing it from our colleagues where public health nurses are, they have donned full PPE, they're testing. Um, I know in Westchester County, they're going out in strike teams uh, of, of three, so they'll have two public health nurses or three, it depends, and then they'll have a driver. So they have a spotter watching them put don and doff PPE, and mm -hmm. they're doing testing and following up on individuals. So we're seeing it across the country where um, those states that have the highest number of cases uh, have really done things very well. I really 
don't have enough information to tell you where things are not going really well, except to say that public health nurses are reporting that they're exhausted in the field, they're working long shifts. So but that has to do with staffing issues. And so that I say is going on across the country. And, and you'll notice also in Westchester County, they're pulling in staff who are very capable uh, from other divisions, so it's really a multidisciplinary approach where they're pulling in game wardens, as an example, people from, you know, I'm, I may not be like the National Forest uh, Service, but people that are actually have some, uh, they have experience in preparedness, they're pulling them in to help coordinate these efforts, make assignments. And we're seeing that in Westchester County. So that's a really good model for everybody to emulate. So where can you use staff where maybe a department is now closed down that you can shift them over and they have that skill set and they can help coordinate uh, teams, make assignments, et cetera. Yeah, that's really fascinating that they would they would be using, utilizing all of the, the, the public workers. It's our public servants. I mean, think yeah. of how many people are in public service. I mean, that's, and they're so dedicated and committed to communities. Angela, we're seeing really people are embracing this sense of community. Like how can they help? Even people that are kind of, you know, reducing their interaction socially or trying to figure out how can I help? How can I volunteer remotely? What can I do? Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes what we can do is just reaching out to other people. So, yeah. Yeah, it is a smart thing to utilize all your your resources. You're leveraging your resources in an, in, a, in an emergency, in a crisis situation. Absolutely. Right. And I feel, I think that this also highlights, it really unfortunately highlights the shortages that we already have in our standard day-to-day -day work life. Exactly. Well, it's... It's uh, when we have an emergency or a crisis, we can see where the gaps are in our systems, and mm -hmm. it, and we're seeing it in 3D going on right now. Yeah, we really are. There, one of the highlights of this pandemic that's been happening is the lack of equipment that people need on the front line, um, specifically. Um, N95 masks uh, and PPE. And it's interesting because you typically, you know, I, I work clinically and we very rarely need and or use the N95 masks because we don't live in a country where we have um, airborne illness all over the place. So right. how moving forward, what do you think that we could do differently to improve this this lack of equipment situation moving forward. I've been I've been thinking about that too, Angela, especially after we're hearing from um, nurses across the U.S. who who actually need an N95 mask when taking care of somebody who uh, it has a positive diagnosis. I, d I did hear actually, I mean, let's talk about the immediate, the, short, the near term and the short term. So I, I, I have heard where um, I believe uh, actually the president met and the vice president met with nurses 
yesterday, nursing organizations mm -hmm. yesterday. And there was some talk about even um, construction companies, because, you know, a lot, there's a lot of painters use or a lot of um, um, uh, craftsmen who make cabinets and so forth because of the dust. They use the N95 masks and mm -hmm. so uh, respirators and so there a lot of construction companies are even like donating all those that they have um, because their industries probably slowed down as well so i think accessing those um i'm not sure what they're doing in terms of ramp ramping up production to get out ppe in general i know that that has been discussed um I'm, i i don't quite have a handle on that but in the future there's a couple things that we need to make sure we're doing is that all healthcare professionals need to be educated on proper fit of the N95s, donning and doffing, uh, numbers of times you can use them. Um, we, we need actually, you know, Angela, we need a return to basics on some things in terms of infection prevention, I think would really help everybody. Um, and beyond that, in terms of the uh, supply chain and making sure we have a cash or a reserve of those kinds of things, um, I don't, I don't have a magic answer for you. But I have been. It's been on my mind. It's been on everybody's mind. Yeah. So what do you think about um, the recommendation that people create their own PPE? Well, Angela, that's deeply disturbing to me. Um, because uh, you know a homemade a homemade mask is not going to protect you. I, right. I, I'm I'm almost at a loss for words on that one, honestly. Actually, even hearing that recommendation is very sobering to me. Very, it, it really speaks to you know the the gravity of the shortage, kind of a desperate time, if you will. And I'm an eternal optimist. For me to say that's pretty uh, pretty rare. Yeah. And also, what do you think about the CDC recommendation? It seems as though the initial recommendation was use the N95 as much as you can and assume that anyone that you're caring for when you're dealing, especially I'm an anesthesia provider. So, uh -huh. you know, whenever you're dealing with an open airway case, you should be using an N95. And then they kind of did a quick pivot and said, oh, you just need a regular mask you know, and only use the N95 when you have definitive cases. But, I mean, it's out in the community. So we really don't know who has it and who doesn't have it. Um, right, so what do you right. think about the, the downgrade of recommendations simply based on the fact that we just don't have enough masks? So the uh, so probably a couple of days ago, I might have even had a different response than what I'm going to give you today. We The point is we don't know the number the true number of cases so either either before so okay so realistically either or not realistically either you test people before they have a procedure that could put you at risk and mm -hmm. which is no guarantee because we don't know how long somebody it takes really before somebody shows up positive it could be a few days or it could be greater than that um I think, I believe that the, the downgrade was done because of the supply chain. 
Right. And I, you know, I, again, it, this situation is changing. It seems like minute to minute, day to day, hour to hour, day to day. And a few days ago, my response to you would have been very different. But today I, I just have to say quite honestly, especially with the, even the recommendation of making our own masks, that those recommendations are based on uh, supply chain. To talk a little bit about how rapidly everything is changing, you did an interview with the BBC last week. Yeah. What can you can you even <laughs> talk about the changes that have happened between then and now? So, uh, so, so I I had a couple of key points. I had three key points. One, we don't have enough testing kits available, and so. We still don't. Many people can't get tested who, who should be tested. Uh, two, I said that part of the problem is a, national, a true national coordinated effort, and, and we, we don't have that because we have had a lack of public health funding for decades. So I said that last week. I've, we've, everybody in public health knows that. We've been saying that for a long time, and I said... If I could do, if I could ask anything, I would ask our elected officials in, in Congress to increase public health funding, and that that hasn't been talked a lot about in the media. And now that's all we're hearing in the media, right, is mm -hmm. around this. And the third thing I said is that everybody, everybody has to do their part to practice the measures to flatten the curve, to reduce the transmission. We know those social distancing, mm -hmm. hand washing, you know, self-quarantine, uh, just minimizing our movement. You know, it's kind of like stirring up uh, chocolate milk and you drop in the chocolate and you see the drops. But if you stir it up and you've got a concentration of people, you're at higher risk for getting um, a particular disease. So. I said that last week, um, those things really haven't changed, but my perspective about what's going on, and I said I take this seriously, I still do, but my perspective and the sense of the heaviness that I think everybody's feeling in the nation, it, it's, um, it's grown exponentially since, since my interview last week. Yeah, that's a very sobering sobering thought. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it speaks to how dynamic this situation is. That's the right word, Angela. It is very dynamic, very dynamic. So <clears throat> with that, um, you know, thinking about those things, what do you think is going to happen? I know that I realize this is a little bit of a loaded question. What do you think is going to happen in the coming weeks now that you know, for example, San Francisco has put itself on lockdown. There, you know, many communities across the country are really starting to kind of shut it down and enforce social distancing. In my area, they closed like all the public parks. Um, they're asking restaurants to not seat people and to just do takeout. Um, my friend was telling me that her local grocery store had a line outside because they were only letting, right. um, you know, certain amount of people in at a time, which I think is a really smart thing to do. I don't know about the line part, but 
at least trying to limit the number of people in the store at the same time is, I think, fairly responsible. Um, so what are some of the things that you think that how this is going to shake out moving forward? Do you feel like we started to do those measures in time or are we simply just waiting to suffer the same fate as, say, Italy? So that's a really good question. So, um, you know, I was thinking about that actually yesterday. Um, let me let me answer the question sort of in two parts. So these measures have been implemented and we know where in the United States that they've been implemented, like as an example, New York or uh, San Francisco or in your community where we have that documented. So part of surveillance is to look at we have implemented a certain um, intervention, social distancing, you know, everything you just described. And that was implemented at X time period. So let's look at now the numbers of cases, keeping in mind, we still have this denominator problem, but let's look at it and see, has the trajectory changed over the last two to three weeks since these measures have been implemented? It's like giving somebody a medicine and seeing, is it working, right? Is their blood pressure going down um, or whatever you're trying, or their blood sugar, whatever you're trying to treat. So it's the same thing in public health when we're doing surveillance and looking at population-based, that's what these are, population-based interventions to to mitigate, to, to flatten the curve that everybody's been talking about. So we're, so I know people, I'm, I feel confident at people in public health, that's exactly what they're going to be looking at. Now, did, it's one of those too little, too late kind of things. Um, people ask that question. Um, I, I wish, I wish things had been uh, implemented sooner because the loss of one life is too many. Yeah, I agree. It is, I think, really difficult for people to conceptualize doing these interventions, which are extremely inconvenient. Um, many of them have big economic consequences. We um, are actually seeing what is happening in other places, and people are still questioning whether or not this is going to be helpful. So I, I think that, unfortunately, it sort of takes the catastrophe and the loss of life or you know, a severe illness for people to even take it seriously. And they, you know, unfortunately, I feel like as people in general, like we have to be able to personalize it. And if we can't personalize it, if I don't know someone right. who is being negatively affected in one way or another, then I have a really hard time, you know, putting these things in place. Yeah. And, but Angela, I would also say at this point, beyond, Sadly, the loss of life or, or knowing somebody who may be, you know, positive with the disease and having a range of anything from mild to severe symptoms where they have to be hospitalized. I would venture to guess that the majority of people um, know of somebody who's been affected in one way or the other, whether they have a loved one that's a healthcare professional, first responder. We've We've all been impacted in terms of um, work, um, schools, and things like that. So I think if we look at it globally, we all have been impacted. But when you have a direct experience, it, 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 it totally changes your world. But, but just like I said, the loss of one life 
is too many in this. Well, Lisa, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and, you know, kind of help us understand what's going on and, and the challenges that are being brought to light uh, in, in our public health system by this pandemic. Angela, you're welcome. I just like to say in close um, that the thing I love about nursing is that as a nurse, we are there to, to, to be with people, to help people. That's what nursing care is all about. But right now, nurses need to be protected so that we can do our job well. And, um, and all healthcare professionals, everybody needs to be protected so we can do our job well and protect our community. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Donato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through.